Well, you can take your Bibles, turn along with me to Revelation chapter 1. It's been a wonderful celebration of Christ's resurrection already this morning. But the reality is, it is in fact our joy to gather every Sunday on the first day of the week to remember and celebrate and commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why Sunday is called the Lord's Day. It's the day set aside for the gathering of the church to worship our risen Lord Jesus Christ. But we take special note and uh, pull out all the stops, as it were, on this special Sunday each year, Easter Sunday, knowing that it was on just such a Sunday some 2,000 years ago that Jesus rose victorious from the dead. He is risen. So this morning, I thought I'd go out on a limb and preach on the resurrection. (laughs) But this morning, I want to focus our attention not so much on the gospel narratives that chronicle the resurrection. We read Matthew's account of the resurrection. All four gospels include their own eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Instead, this morning, I want us to consider for the few moments we have together the present reality of our glorious resurrected Christ. The present reality of the resurrected Christ. I want us to focus not so much on the historical certainty of the resurrection, and that would be good and right to do on such a day, but rather on the present reality of the resurrection. The fact is, Jesus is alive. He's alive today. He's alive at this very moment. He's alive, and the Bible teaches us that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, the place of honor, authority, and power. I want us to see together from God's Word this morning an amazing picture of our risen Savior, a picture that is just as current and relevant today as it was when it was originally given. So with that in mind, I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Pastor Rob gave a great message last week on heaven from the closing chapters of Revelation. And this morning we're going to look at the opening chapter of Revelation. So go to the, all the way to the end of your Bibles. You'll find the book of Revelation there and we're going to be in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation was written by the apostle John, the apostle whom Jesus loved. That's what he said. John, who along with his brother James was called directly by Jesus from a life of fishing on the Sea of Galilee to a life of fishing for men, for the souls of people. John, the same John who was part of Jesus' inner circle and who had witnessed the marvelous unveiling of the divine glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. What a sight that must have been to behold. John himself, who was the one who laid his head on Jesus' chest in that upper room as they gathered around the Passover table together on the eve of Christ's crucifixion. It was John who was the only documented disciple at the foot of the cross. John who was asked by Jesus as he hung on the cross near death to care for Jesus' mother, Mary. And it was John who himself was an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection on that first Resurrection Sunday. 
It is this same John, the Apostle John, who received a special revelation from God about the things that were to come. Look with me at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Now skip down with me to verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. See, John had been sent into exile and made a prisoner of the Romans on the Isle of Patmos because he continued preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He defied the orders of those who were in charge and kept on preaching Jesus Christ. Now, now the timing of all this was about 65 years after the resurrection. 65 years have gone by. Any 60-year-olds in here? Okay, we're going to mark this time by you. All right, 65 years. It's a long time. The Apostle John at this point is probably in his late 80s or early 90s. Look at verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. John is a communing with the Lord. He is taken into some kind of a heavenly vision through the Spirit. And he says, And I heard behind me, in verse 10, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now this is not your usual quiet time. This isn't a, presented by the Scriptures as a typical normative Christian experience. This is something special. John then, in verse 11 is commanded by this loud trumpet-like voice to write in a book what he sees and to send it to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now join with me as we look at our text for this morning, beginning in verse 12, and I'm going to read through verse 18. This is what we're going to focus on this morning. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades." Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we want to see a vision of you high and lifted up. Exalted as you are at the right hand of the Father. Help us to see in this highly symbolic picture. You in all of your glory. Transcendent and yet stooping toward us. Reaching out to us. 
in compassion and mercy and grace and words of comfort and assurance. May we never forget that you are indeed exalted to the place of King of kings and Lord of lords. May it be reflected in our lives each day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, from this passage, I want us to see together three realities of our risen Christ. Three realities of our risen Christ that are just as true of Him today as they were when John originally penned these words. Three present-day realities concerning Jesus who has risen from the dead. We're going to see a picture of Jesus Christ which should change the way we think about everything. For Jesus has risen. And that truth changes everything. And it should change the way we live our daily lives. It's a glorious picture with eternal importance. So let's look at it together. Now, at the time that John writes these words regarding the resurrection of Jesus, it has occurred some 65 years earlier. Jesus rose from the dead on that Sunday after the crucifixion, just three days after he died. He not only rose from the dead, leaving behind an empty tomb as evidence of his resurrection, but he also appeared to many, many eyewitnesses over a period of 40 days. 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus appeared to many different witnesses. Let me just summarize those for you. As we read earlier in the service, the risen Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene and the other women who had come to the tomb that first Easter Sunday morning to attend to the body of Jesus, a body which was gone. Jesus graciously revealed himself to Mary as we read of and sang of earlier in the service. Jesus then appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Next, Jesus appeared to ten of the eleven disciples in Jerusalem. A week later, Jesus appeared to all 11 of the disciples again in Jerusalem, this time with that missing disciple, Thomas, present, inviting Thomas to to touch the wounds and to inspect for himself the reality of the risen Christ. Jesus later appeared to and made breakfast for seven of the disciples who were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. How'd you like the risen Christ to make you breakfast? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses over the course of those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. Many of these eyewitnesses were still alive at the time that Paul wrote those words. And so the facts of what he wrote could be verified by checking with any of these 500 still living eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection. Jesus then appeared to all his disciples at his ascension to heaven from the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Later on, Stephen was granted a vision of the risen Christ at the moment of his martyrdom. As they were stoning him, he saw a vision of the risen Christ at God the Father's side in heaven. And then, of course, we know that Paul, the Apostle Paul, saw a vision of the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus as he powerfully was converted and became a devoted follower of Jesus Christ from that day forward. What we have here in the words of the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John, is yet another eyewitness account of the resurrected Christ, right here in Revelation chapter 1. 
So let's look at this account and see what we can learn about the risen Jesus. Three realities of our risen Christ. First of all, notice this. The risen Christ is gloriously transcendent. He's gloriously transcendent. We see this in verses 12 through 16 in this vision. John, while in the Spirit on the Lord's day, received this revelation from God, a vision that he is instructed to write down and to share with others, to share with these other churches. This instruction to write down what he sees comes from a loud voice that was like the sound of a trumpet. Now John naturally wondered where this sound was coming from. Who was making it? Who was speaking to him in such an unusual way with such an unusual voice? So naturally, verse 12, he turned to see the voice that was speaking with him. Now what John saw as he turned around is absolutely otherworldly. It's not like anything he'd ever seen before. It's not like anything you or I have ever seen before. Now there are a few things we need to keep in mind as we walk through these verses. What John sees is a vision. A vision given to him by God. And as a vision, it is highly symbolic. Okay, this is not actually what Jesus looks like. Jesus has his glorified body, his resurrected body. But it doesn't look literally like this. This is symbolic language. It's a visual, if you will, a visual illustration, illustrating truths of who Jesus truly is, his true identity and the attributes that he has. So John sees things he's not used to seeing, things that he struggles to find the words to describe. John sees things that are complex symbols representing both physical and spiritual realities. He's seeing things not as they truly are, but as they are visually symbolized. John is struggling to find words to describe these things, what he's seeing, and so he often uses the word like. Now, a lot of us like to use the word like. Like now. Like always. John uses that word as a way to try to convey what is strange and otherworldly by using analogies from things we know and are familiar with. John will say seven times in these verses that what he saw was like this or it was like that. That things were bright like the sun or they were white like snow. John takes the things that we know and are familiar with and uses them to help describe the vision that he's seeing. So this vision that John sees is highly symbolic and therefore employs highly symbolic language. Jesus, for instance, does not have an actual sword coming out of his mouth. But in this vision that John is seeing, the image of the sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus is highly symbolic and highly significant. It's teaching us something about who Jesus really is. It's doing so using these visuals that are shocking, highly unusual. 
So to say that these things are highly symbolic does not imply that they don't have real meaning or that they are not grounded in an underlying reality. In fact, these visions that John received are intended to point to realities that are as real and as concrete as anything in our world today. As we will see, the vision communicates amazing truths about the glorious nature of our resurrected Christ. So John turns his head to see where this loud voice is coming from. And as he turns his head, he sees a vision of the resurrected Jesus. And the first thing that John sees in this vision are seven golden lampstands. A lampstand typically held portable clay oil lamps. These seven lampstands are symbols of the seven churches in seven separate cities to which John was to write. And you can read through chapters 1, 2, and 3 to learn about those. And so these lampstands are very important images to represent the churches. Churches are made up of gospel-transformed Christians who were to embody and shine forth the light of Christ. And so that's what these lampstands are representing. They're the, representing the churches of Christ. And in the middle of the lampstands, John sees a human figure who turns out to be the source of this loud voice that had been talking to him. This human figure in the middle of the lampstands is said to be one like a son of man. That's a very important description for it's picking up on some very important language from another very important vision from God. This one received by the prophet Daniel about 600 years earlier. Daniel 7.13, listen to this language. Daniel sees in a vision, he says, I keep, kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. One like a son of man. Same language. That's not by mistake. John very intentionally uses the same language as Daniel to describe what he saw. And as it turns out, the person that John saw was the same person that Daniel saw. The language, one like a son of man, is intended to communicate that the figure that John saw had a very human form and a very human likeness. Jesus used the same language of himself, son of man. Son of Man came to have this added significance as a messianic title. As the one who is truly man, the second Adam, the representative of the human race. When Stephen was being stoned, he was granted that vision of heaven. And he too saw the Son of Man. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So the term son of man has a dual purpose to indicate that the figure John is seeing is authentically human in appearance as well as having a messianic identity. John now describes what this human figure is wearing. They say that clothes make the man. And by the way, you all look so nice today wearing your Easter duds. These clothes that John describes are intended to teach us something about this person's identity and their attributes. This son of man was clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. A sign of high rank and dignity. He also wore a golden sash across his chest signifying that he has a position of honor and authority for judgment. Golden sash is a 
indication of honor and authority. From describing his clothing, John now moves on to describe his personal characteristics, some of his personal features of this Son of Man. Verse 14, he describes the Son of Man's head and hair as being white like wool, and then adds another description, like snow. Thankfully, we don't have snow today, amen? We've got a nice, warm Easter day. But we're familiar with snow. We know snow. We get snow. Perfectly white, pure white. If this was Bob Ross's palette, it would be titanium white. Now this is an obvious close connection again to what Daniel saw in another of Daniel's visions. In Daniel 7, 9, Daniel received a vision of God himself, the ancient of days. Listen to what it says in Daniel 7, 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days, a reference to God himself, took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. What an image. What a vision. What similarities with the vision that John sees here. John is clearly drawing close connections between the ancient of days and the son of man. Hair that's white like wool, white like snow is intended to convey old age and wisdom. As is the title ancient of days. Both descriptors convey the idea of eternal pre-existence. There's never a time when God wasn't. He's always existed. There's never a time when God the Son wasn't. He's always existed, co-equal and co-eternal in the Godhead. The fact that both the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man have white hair, white as wool or snow, communicates an equality between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. Next, we see that the Son of Man has eyes like a flame of fire. This communicates His great fierceness and power. It communicates an all-seeing vision and a supernatural intelligence and wisdom. Tells us that Jesus sees everything. He knows everything. He's all wise. This person is not to be trifled with, but is rather to be given the utmost respect and reverence. As John's description moves downward from head to toe, we're told in verse 15 that his feet are like burnished bronze. They were glowing feet, red, hot, with the shining purity like they'd just been taken out of the forge. Feet symbolize movement, and these burning, shining brass feet are moving about among the lampstands, inculcating and encouraging purity from the churches. Next in verse 15 comes a further description of his voice. We have already seen that his voice was loud and like a trumpet, but here we learn that it also sounded like many waters like the roaring of waves, like a mass of water flowing and crashing and pounding, much like the waves that would have crashed against the rocks all around the shore of the island where John had been exiled there on Patmos. It's clear that this is similar to what Ezekiel described as the glory of God when it returned to the temple in Ezekiel 
says, Behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. His voice was like the sound of many waters. The sound of this voice is intended to convey power and authority and glory and to leave the one who hears it in awe and amazement. Now we come to the final descriptions of this vision in verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars. The seven stars in Jesus' hands are the seven messengers of the churches and are practically identical with the churches themselves. The picture of them being held in Jesus' right hand is intended to convey the idea of Jesus' control and authority over the churches as well as his safekeeping of them. Jesus said during his life and ministry that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How can he say that? Because he has the church in his hands. And he demonstrates his watch care over the churches in this vision by holding them in his right hand. Next we see that out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Indicating that the words that come out of his mouth are powerful and decisive and bring judgment upon those who refuse to hear it. Paul describes the word of God as the sword of the spirit and here the tongue of Jesus and therefore the words of Jesus are symbolically pictured as powerfully as a sword wielded by a mighty warrior judge. Finally, John describes the face of the risen Christ as being like the sun, shining in its strength. Deborah and Barak, the prophets in Judges 5.31, use the same language to describe those who love the Lord. Their faces shine like the sun. And this is just what John saw 65 years earlier at the transfiguration. There he is on the mountain with his brother James and with Peter. And Jesus pulls back the veil of his humanity and allows them to see something of his glory. Matthew 17 says that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. Now, that's quite a description of our risen Christ. That's quite a vision, is it not? We've got to step back a bit and look at the overall effect that this vision was to have. It's a picture of otherworldly glory. A human-like figure walking among seven golden lampstands, wearing a long flowing robe with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair are white like wool, white as snow, while his eyes are like a flame of fire. He has glowing bronze feet and his voice sounds like the crash of waves. He holds seven stars in his right hand and from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. All the while his face is shining as bright as the sun at midday. It's quite a picture. A picture of transcendent glory. This is a picture of a being who is like us and yet not at all like us. A picture of one who is the son of man and yet who is also the son of God. This is a picture of a being with unmatched power, 
of, un, of blinding glory, of infinite wisdom, and of unmatchable might. The emphasis here in this vision is on Christ's transcendence. The risen Christ's transcendence. He is not like us. He is far greater than us. He's far more knowledgeable than us, far more powerful than us, far wiser than us. In short, the risen Jesus is glorious in his being. Amen? Glorious in his being, glorious in might, glorious in wisdom, and glorious in judgment. And the intended effect of all this is to leave us all in awe and wonder and even fear and trembling. As we see, this was John's response. Jesus is glorious. He is risen. And the risen Christ is transcendently glorious. Secondly, we learn from this that the risen Christ is merciful and compassionate. He is mercifully and compassionately near. Verse 17. Look how John responds. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I think that's a pretty understandable reaction on John's part, don't you? I think we would be in John's shoes as well, shaken in our boots. John has just seen things that are really even beyond his ability to describe. John sees this image of the Son of Man and he is terrified. And he falls at Jesus' feet like a dead man. That's not at all an uncommon way to respond when faced with the sight of the glory of God. Isaiah, upon seeing a vision of God in his throne room, cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone. It was the same response of Ezekiel when he saw the glory of the Lord in Ezekiel 128. And it's precisely what John and his brother James and Peter did when they saw the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and heard the voice of God from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. They feared and they trembled and they fell to the ground. Such a vision of God's glory and transcendence in the person of Jesus Christ, should leave us feeling uncomfortable and even terrified. This is the God you will face on the day of judgment, whose searching eyes and piercing judgments always get it right. There's reason for fear. We're right to respond with a sense of dread and fear in the face of such glory and transcendence. And John falls flat on his face as though he were a dead man. So what does Jesus do in response to John's fear? He came near to John, placed his right hand upon John, and spoke words of assurance and comfort to John. 
Jesus came near. This is what Jesus has always done for us in the midst of our need and our fear and our sin. Jesus comes near. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh. The eternal Word, the eternal Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, lived among us. And we saw His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus dwelt among us. He lived a sinful life, sinless life and died on the cross for you and for me. Our sins had left us condemned before a holy God, but in love, God sent forth His Son, Jesus, to live the perfect life you and I could never live, to fulfill all the righteousness of God by fulfilling all the commandments of God, and then to die the death that we all deserved. Jesus came near. He came near and He died for you and for me so that we might have Peace with God. That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus came near. And he did for you what you could never do for yourself. Secure your eternal peace with God. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection three days later means that you and I can have our sins forgiven. And be given eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And all because Jesus came near. Notice that Jesus came near to John and put his right hand on John. Jesus' hand was extended to John, not in condemnation, not with a pointing finger of accusation and judgment, but in mercy and grace and compassion, with an open hand of consolation. John 3, 16 and 17 says that God so loved the world that God gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. But listen to the next verse. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge or condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus' purpose in drawing near to us in the incarnation was that we might be saved through faith in Him. Not to judge us, not to condemn us in our sins, but to deliver us from the coming wrath of God. And so it is today. Jesus is alive. He is risen. Jesus is alive and He offers to give you today eternal life and forgive you of all of your sins if you turn from your sin and trust in Him. He extends His hand toward you today in mercy and compassion and bids you come to Him, not in fear, but in joy and thanksgiving for what He has done for you. When John felt overwhelmed with fear in the presence of our glorious Lord, Jesus came near. He extended his hand in compassion and grace and spoke words of assurance and comfort. Do not fear. Fear not. You may remember that when Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to his disciples, the first words from his mouth were typically, Peace be with you. Don't be afraid. Have peace. 
peace that I've secured on your behalf. That is still true today. Jesus speaks peace to those who humbly receive him as Lord and Savior. There are only two ways of relating to Jesus. He either is your Lord and Savior or he is going to be your judge on that great day. You either relate to him as your Lord and Savior by placing your faith in him and humbly submitting to his rule over your life or you can continue to resist him and refuse him and in the end you will find yourself forever cast out from his gracious presence and you'll find yourself in the anguish and regret of hell for all eternity. But it doesn't have to be that way because Jesus came near and he's coming near to you again today. How do I know that? Because you're here. You're here under the sound of the gospel. You're here under the sound of Jesus saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus speaks peace to those who humble themselves and trust in him. He brings them eternal peace by granting them forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Today, believe in Jesus Christ, for he is risen. Amen. Thirdly, we see the risen Christ is ruling and reigning as the sovereign king over all. Now, having reassured John by drawing near to him and extending a hand of assurance and compassion toward him and by speaking words of peace over him, Jesus begins to reveal himself to John more fully, this time using words. He shares with John a series of self-descriptions and titles. Jesus says of himself, first of all, that he is the first and the last. This is how God revealed himself to Isaiah, as the first and the last. This is similar to how Jesus described himself in Revelation 1.8, just a few verses earlier. I am the Alpha and the Omega, The first letter in the alphabet, the last letter in the alphabet, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, I am the Almighty. This is a statement that Jesus is the first and the last. It's a statement of his eternality. Jesus claimed the same eternality during his earthly life when he stated, before Abraham was born, I am. Next, Jesus says that he is the living one. Doesn't simply mean that Jesus is alive, but that he possesses all life, that he is the source of all life, that his life is dependent on no one and on nothing. This is a statement of Jesus' self-existence and eternality. John 1, 4, we're told that in Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus himself says in John 5, 26, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus is the source of all life. Next, Jesus says, I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. This is the glorious truth of the resurrection. That Jesus was dead, really dead. Not mostly dead, but really dead. Truly dead. But now he's alive forevermore. He is risen. Not only is Jesus alive forevermore, but he also has the keys of death in Hades. Keys symbolize authority. 
You want to find out who's in charge? See who has the keys. And Jesus has authority over death in Hades. Hades is the place of the dead. Jesus has authority both over the state of death and the places we go after our death. This proves that Jesus is the sovereign Lord over both the day of our death and over the afterlife. This means that Jesus possesses all life, that he is the life giver. If you want true life, if you want eternal life, seek it in Jesus. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It means also that Jesus has all authority and is worthy of all praise. That he is king. That his cross of humiliation has been transformed into a crown of glory. Amen? I wonder this morning, do you recognize this Jesus as king? Have you surrendered your will to his? Have you stopped trying to trust in all that you can do to save yourself and simply brought yourself to the feet of Jesus in humility and confessed him as Lord and Savior? There's nothing more important in your life than answering this question. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Friends, is Jesus your Savior today? Is Jesus your King? We've seen a glorious picture this morning of Jesus' transcendence, of His nearness, of His compassion and mercy to meet us in our need, and of His life-giving power and rule over all things. This is our glorious, resurrected Christ. He is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a glorious vision of your greatness, of your transcendence, and yet also of your mercy and compassion and nearness to meet our need. There is no reason anyone needs to leave here today without knowing that their sins are forgiven and that they have eternal life. All they need to do is to trust in you, Jesus. I pray that you would call them by name, call them to yourself, and may they respond in simple faith and trust in you and what you've finished and completed on the cross for them. May they believe in your death and resurrection, and have eternal life. And may we as Christians today rejoice knowing that our Savior is alive, that He rules and reigns over all things, that even death is subjected to Him. Lord, we thank You for Your glorious reality, for the resurrection that is not only Yours, but is ours also. And the great hope that it brings to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.